Uh, we're going to be focusing on the kingdom as revolting beauty. It manifests the beauty, the beauty of God's love, the beauty of his character, the beauty of what it looks like when an individual or and a community reign, when God reigns over the life of an individual or community. It's beautiful. And precisely by being beautiful, it revolts against all aspects of the culture and religion of the society that isn't in line with that beauty. It revolts against ugliness. But also it manifests the kind of beauty that those who aren't in on it may find revolting. And we're going to be talking about that uh, here today. So it's revolting beauty. Uh, we are doing a number of things around this series uh, that we're embarking on today. We'll continue to study the book of Luke just as we are. But beyond that, we have small groups that are, are, have been formed just for the purpose of helping people get deeper in on this than we can get in, in the uh, sermon series. And also to kind of begin to check out kingdom community. So if you're not in a small group, uh, whether it's a permanent small group or it's a, uh, one of our six-week small groups designed just for this series, I encourage you to check it out, to be a part of that. We've got some openings still, roughly 100 or so. And so if you want to be plugged into a small group uh, to get, get together once a week and, and we have study material that you'll just be discussing and things of this sort, uh, sign up in, at the Revolting Beauty desk in the gathering area. Also, we have a prayer journal that we encourage everyone to pick up. Um, and th this just has daily devotionals that are on this theme of Revolting Beauty. Uh, you can read, reflect, pray, and, and, and do some journaling there. There's just a power to a community doing the same thing. If we get, everyone's kind of thinking along the same lines, discussing the same questions, praying along the same lines. There is a, a kingdom power in unity that can't be gotten anywhere else, any way else. And so we encourage people to get on board with this Revolting Beauty series. Amen. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's so good to see you all out here this morning. Glad you made the choice. Uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, the Bible says in the King James Version. And you, you are here today, and that's, that's a good thing. Let's turn to the Word. We're now up to Luke chapter 9. This is what we do at Woodland Hills Church. We just go through the Bible, nothing fancy. We read a verse and then talk about a verse. Read a verse and talk about the verse. We don't need to jazz it up because the Bible's got its own authority. Amen? So we're going to entitle this message, A Call to Stand Out. And this is the first in our series on revolting beauty. The unofficial title might be something like this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, question mark. That's not the official title. I'm just saying that's the kind of unofficial title. The official title is A Call to Stand Out. We're beginning this series at this point because, oh, I want to say one more thing before I go any further. It has to do with why I'm glad I live in the 21st century. I thought you just might want to know. Um, you see, in the first century, there was a lot of things in the culture that uh, kind of worked against the full expression of the kingdom of God. For example, uh, slavery was permitted in the first century. It's not in the 21st century, and I'm glad about that. Um, another thing is this. Women in the first century, it was just considered ungodly to wear any kind of jewelry, so Paul forbids it. It was uh, considered ungodly for them to ever braid their hair. It meant something in the first century that was just ungodly, so Paul forbids it. And he, and he, and he also tells them that they can't wear any kind of uh, expensive clothing because it just meant something in the first century that it doesn't necessarily mean today, so Paul forbid it. But today, uh, it, it doesn't have that meaning, so, so it's allowable. And in the same context that he says that, and you're all wondering, what is he talking about? Well, in the same context in which he says that, the next verse he says, uh, women shouldn't have any, uh, ever teach a, a, a man. Um, and I'm so glad that we're not in the first century, because if we were, then Sandra Unger couldn't have preached last week and delivered that outstanding message that she preached. Amen? 
Amen. Uh, and and uh, that's one of the values that we have here is that your ministry is, is determined by your giftedness, not your gender or race or socioeconomic standard or anything like that. And so praise God uh, that we have uh, such anointed quality female teachers here uh, in, in, in our, our body. Okay, at this point in Luke, he's been so far focusing on Galilee. Jesus is ministering Galilee up to this point. And now there's a turn, a shift in Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 51. And the rest of his gospel is going to be about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem as well as what happens to Jesus when he's in Jerusalem. So there's a major turn that's happening in the passage that we're looking at here today. And so I'll start with verse 51. And I'll just read the verse and then talk about it, read the verse and talk about it. First, I want to pray. Father, let your word come alive. Let it have authority and power. Let it bring life to us. That's your job, Holy Spirit, not mine. So I just am going to rest in, in, in the sufficiency of your power and just use my words, Lord. And God, anoint this message to tear down strongholds in our life that we don't even know are there, the worst kind, and free us to manifest the beauty of the reign of God in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, referring to the ascension, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, in, the, in the original Greek, it has, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And so you get this picture of Jesus, he's talking to people and he's ministering to people, you know, here, there, and everywhere. But at some point, all of a sudden, he stops and he turns and he faces Jerusalem. And he just starts walking, and his face is fixed on Jerusalem. The, the metaphor denotes uh, extreme determination, extreme resolution. He resolved himself that he had to go to, to Jerusalem. And he needed to resolve himself because this isn't the place where he would normally want to go. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to the center of power, religious power and political power, and the, the, just by the nature of the kingdom that he manifests and the ministry that he does, he knows that he's going to provoke that power and he knows he's going to be crucified. So his journey to Jerusalem is a journey to crucifixion. But it's also a journey to, to manifest uh, revolting beauty. In fact, the crucifixion is the quintessential expression of revolting beauty. Because when Jesus is crucified, he manifests the beauty of God's outrageous love and he revolts against the religious and political powers of his day and all aspects of the culture of his day that aren't beautiful. In fact, when he's crucified, he revolts against Satan and the principalities and powers that hold this whole world in its death grip. And so this journey to Jerusalem is really a, 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 can be taken as a metaphor for the whole kingdom journey. It's the journey that we're on as we are learning and growing how to manifest the unique, distinct beauty of God, revolting against everything in the world that is contrary to it. And then Luke goes on to say this. Jesus sent messengers on ahead, and these messengers went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there, the Samaritans there, did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. His face was set towards Jerusalem. And just a word about this, it's interesting. The Samaritans, you need to know, were despised by almost all Jews of the time. 
in the first century. The Samaritans were seen as being ethnically impure. They were seen as being half-breeds. They were part Jewish, but part Gentile. And, and so they were, there was a racial prejudice against Samaritans on the part of most Jews of the time. And on top of that, they were seen as being heretics. They had kind of evolved, because of the racial separation, their religion was, was a version of Judaism, but a different from the Orthodox Judaism of the Jews that were centered in Jerusalem. For example, the Samaritans didn't recognize the temple as the center of the Jewish religion. They didn't recognize Jerusalem as the center of the Jewish religion. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim. Uh, their Bible was a little bit different from the Orthodox Bible that the, the Jews in Jerusalem or the Jews that, who were centered in Jerusalem had. Uh, it, it differed a little bit. So there was a lot of religious, but even more so racial, disdain between the Samaritans and the Jews. So much so that Jews typically would not set foot in Samaria. If they had to go from the north down to Jerusalem, they'd go around Samaria. They took a longer route because they didn't want to defile themselves by going through that unclean area. But Jesus, when he sets out to go to Jerusalem, he goes right through Samaria. And what does that tell you about Jesus? It tells you something beautiful about Jesus. It's revolting beauty, folks. Because Jesus is manifesting the reign of God, and the beauty of a life under God's reign. So a beauty of a life that doesn't conform to the racist walls that are set up in any kind of culture. He, he manifests the beauty of a life that revolts against all laws and all norms and all values that have racist overtones that separate people. And just by the way Jesus lives, he revolts against that. And so while most Jews would go around Samaria, he goes right through it. Because people in Samaria need the kingdom of God as much as people anywhere else. And the people in Samaria are loved by God as much as anywhere else. And so Jesus Christ belongs in Samaria as much as anywhere else. And in doing that, he beautifully revolts against the racist norms of the uh, Jewish society of his day. He goes through Samaria. And then it says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they saw that this, this Samaritan village uh, didn't uh, welcome the disciples of Jesus. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these sinners, these Samaritan sinners? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, it says he turned, which is significant, because remember, Luke just said, his face was set towards Jerusalem. He's set, he's set, he's walking, and all of a sudden his disciples are, are going, should we call down fire from heaven and incinerate these sinners? And now Jesus gets his eyes off of Jerusalem, and he turns, and he rebukes them. Now what's really interesting here is this. You could understand James and John from their first century Jewish perspective wanting this to happen. For one thing, there was a racist overtone to this. Uh, they'd been rejected in other towns and they never wanted to call down fire from heaven. Why here? Well, maybe because they don't like the Samaritans and they don't like to see some of them fry. So now all of a sudden they want to call down fire from heaven. But even beyond that, there was precedent for what they were asking for in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you find two examples of people calling on God for fire to come from heaven and incinerate their enemies, and it happened. In fact, most interestingly, and this is probably what was in the mind of James and John, we find Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 1, he's talking to a Samar the Samaritan king. The Samaritan king won't acknowledge Yahweh as the Lord God, so Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the Samaritan king is incinerated. And so James and John are probably saying, well, look at if it happened to the Samaritan king, why shouldn't it happen to these folks? He rejected God, got incinerated. They're rejecting God. They should get incinerated. So there's Old Testament precedent for it. And yet Jesus rebukes them. 
Now, whatever else that teaches us, it's got to teach us this. It's a reminder of just how radically different God's mode of operation is in this new covenant compared to what it was sometimes, at least, in the old covenant. Radically different. An event that was considered a heroic, God-glorifying event in the Old Testament is rebuked in the New Testament as not of God. Think about that. It emphasizes how important it is for us, how important it is for us kingdom people to take our marching orders from Jesus and the new covenant and the kingdom that he established and to get our information about what God is really like by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ and nowhere else. The mindset that we have about God, the mindset we have about the world, and the mindset we have about our enemies especially is very different in the kingdom than it was at least sometimes in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was at least at times appropriate and considered honorable to call down the wrath of God and incinerate your enemies. In the New Covenant, we're to call down something from God on our enemies, but it's to be a blessing. Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Pray for those, not against those. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good to those who consider themselves your enemies. We're to call down something from God on our enemies, but it's not the wrath of God. Not now, not in this covenant, not in this kingdom. This kingdom is about blessing. This kingdom is about service. If James and John would have said what they should have said if they would have had their head on right about this new kingdom, they, they should have said, Lord, do you want us to call down blessing on these Samaritans? And Jesus would have said, by all means, let's just call down the blessing of God and, and just soak these sinners uh, and open their eyes and pray for them and ask the question, how can we serve them? That's the new covenant way of responding to enemies. And it just so grieves the heart of God, I believe, when we do a James and John sort of thing and we jump over Jesus to try to justify violence today. Don't ever jump over Jesus to get to the Old Testament to justify whatever violence is in your heart. We take our marching orders from Jesus, and he says, you call down blessing on your enemies. You serve your enemies. You do good to your enemies. You love your enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Are you with me? All right. This episode reveals something different. If you think that was hard-hitting, stick around. Uh, here Jesus, he is, he is trusting his disciples to do something that, 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 that's new. He sends his disciples out ahead of him to prepare the ground for him to come. They're to be kind of doing a John the Baptist sort of thing. They're, to, they're, they're, they're supposed to go there and kind of warm up the crowds about the Messiah, maybe give some reports about what he's done, get them ready. And no doubt part of their job was practical to find homes that they can stay in because there's no hotels in those days, and so they would depend on the hospitality of people. So he sends them out on this important mission to get the crowds ready. It's an important role. And right out of the gate, they blow it magnificently. I mean, the, 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 the most basic 101 principle of the kingdom they blow. They want to use Jesus to bring about wrath rather than blessing. Jesus rebukes them, but he still regards them as his disciples. In fact, they continue on the journey to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they blow it even worse. Right at the crucial moment, they all run for cover and deny Jesus. But when he rises again, he, he still considers them his disciples. Which tells us that in the kingdom, it's okay to blow it. Now, maybe you shouldn't have blown it. It was wrong to blow it. Maybe it was even stupid that you blew it, but you blew it. But in the kingdom, as long as you get back up and get in the game, it's okay. You're still a disciple of Jesus. 
And see, this encourages my heart, and I hope it encourages your heart. We're all on a journey. The kingdom isn't a resting place. It's a journey to someplace. It's a journey to Jerusalem, which ultimately is a journey to living a crucified life, a Christ-like kingdom life. But it's a journey. None of us are there yet. We're all in process. We're all involved in on-the-job training. So we're all going to fall at times, which is okay. Learn from it, get forgiveness, and get back in the game and start journeying. And why that is so important, folks, is this. I meet people all the time who, for one bad reason or another, don't get involved in the journey. They sit on the fence. They're pew sitters. They're kingdom spectators, but never kingdom participants. And some of them think thoughts like this. Well, you know, I feel hypocritical if I get too involved because I'm just not spiritual. In fact, I'm really carnal. I never sense God's presence, and I never talk to God. I I, I keep coming to church because I believe it's true, but I'm just not spiritual. Or they say things like, Well, I would love to get involved, but see, I'm still wounded. I'm not healthy enough. I haven't received my full healing. The healing's not complete. Once it is complete, I'll get involved, but right now I'm just too wounded. Or they say things like, I'm just not qualified. I I feel hypocritical if I get involved in kingdom work because I had that abortion and I had, and the other person says, I had an affair, or I've been married three times, or I did this, that, and the other thing. Or some will say, I I never graduated from high school and I just don't talk that well and and, and I'll, I'll make the kingdom look stupid if I get involved and do anything. And so they disqualify themselves from the journey. What I want us to say, see here is this. The kingdom of God is beautiful precisely because it doesn't wait for us to get healthy and before it uses us. It doesn't wait for us to get qualified before it uses us. It doesn't wait till we get spiritual before God uses us. Rather, God uses unhealthy, uh, unspiritual, unqualified people to build his kingdom. That's one of the ways he shows forth the beauty of who he is. That's one of the ways we know that God did it instead of us doing it. He takes people like us, losers like us, unqualified people like us, unspiritual people like us, and he uses it to build his kingdom, praise God. If God was waiting around for us to be fully qualified and fully healed and and relieved of our wounds and healed from our wounds and and, and spiritual enough, then nothing would ever get done in the kingdom. Because none of us are fully healed, none of us are spiritual enough, and none of us are really qualified for the kingdom. But he takes us and he uses us as we are. And that is part of the beauty of the kingdom. And you'll find this, that one of the best things you can do in your wounded state One of the best things you can do to begin to get healthy is to get involved in the game. Get in the game as you are. Start serving people. Get your mind off yourself. Get your mind on other people, entering into other people's stuff. And watch how that doesn't bring healing in your life. One of the best best things you can do to begin to develop a spiritual awareness and and begin to move in the spiritual realm is just to start the journey. In all your carnality, uh, jump in the game, start marching towards Jerusalem, follow Jesus, get involved in kingdom work. And watch how that doesn't mature you spiritually. Watch how that doesn't heal you. Watch how that, that, that begins to qualify you. And you're, you're, the way that you sometimes blow it while you're walking to Jerusalem becomes your badge of qualification. That's how you learn. That's how you, you grow. So the word from this passage is get in the game. Set your face towards Jerusalem. Get off the pews. Get off the fence. Get in the ministry. As you are in all your carnality, in all your unspiritualness, in all your unqualifiedness right here, right now, Commit to getting involved, to actually serving, being Christ-like to other people. And that is the way that God now begins to grow the kingdom inside of you. And maybe you're saying, but if I do that, I know I'll blow it. I'll blow it. And I have a word from God for you. Thus saith the Lord, you will most certainly blow it. It is guaranteed you will blow it. Thou shalt blow it. 
learn from it, repent of it if, it, if you need to, receive God's grace, and get back in the game and keep marching towards Jerusalem. Maybe you're here saying, well, okay, but like, how do you do that? That sounds so abstract. How do I, I really get involved in serving people? There's a lot of people at Woodland Hills Church who think that what we're about is this weekend service. You hear a sermon, and you sing some songs, and meet a few people and go home. But what we're about actually is, is way beyond this service. Uh, we've got hundreds of, ministry of peop- ministries of, of people involved out there, serving the world, looking like Jesus in, in various ways to the world around us. And if you want to know about those ways, to pray about getting involved in one of those ways, one of our jobs in this Revolting Beauty series is to help people get plugged in, make it really, 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 really easy to get plugged in. So we have a book. This is called Revolting Beauty Volunteer Opportunities. This, this doesn't encompass everything that we do because there's a lot of ministries out there, a part of Woodland Hills Church, that we don't even know about. This is just us brainstorming on the various things that people at Woodland Hills Church are involved in. I encourage everybody to pick one of these up and read through these. Maybe God will lead you to pray over the ministry, and maybe God will say, I want you or I want your small group to adopt one of these ministries and get involved because all of us are the ministers of the kingdom. All of us are to be marching to Jerusalem. All of us are to be an individual and corporate version of Jesus bleeding on behalf of the world, serving the world in every way, shape, and form. So pick one of these books up. Now let's move on. And now it gets into the real revolting beauty part of this passage. It says, Then Jesus and his disciples went to another village in Samaria. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now Jesus was the world's worst salesman and would have been kicked out of every church planning ministry that I've ever heard of because he just didn't know how to give it a good spin, did he? Jesus said, well, good, but the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Um, In fact, if we don't find some lodging tonight, I'm going to be sleeping on the side of the road. That's what it means to follow me. Are you willing to do that? Apparently the guy wasn't ready to do that because we have no record of him joining uh, the ministry here. He said to another man, now, now Jesus is calling people out, you, follow me. And the man replied, apparently, yeah, yeah, Lord, I will, but first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is up with that? Now, I've heard it preached, maybe you have too, uh, th- th- this interpretation. Jesus was saying, let the spiritual, de- spiritually, that, that those who are spiritually dead worry about burying people. Uh, which would mean that every funeral director on the planet must be spiritually dead. Which I don't think Jesus was trying to say. And he wasn't saying there's anything wrong with wanting to bury your father. There's something else going on here. I, a better interpretation, I think, is this. We know that uh, in the first century which is the time period that we're dealing with here. And for some time before the first century and sometime after the first century, it was the Jewish custom to uh, deal this way with the deceased. You'd bury them in a, a shallow grave or, on a, or in a cave alongside the hill and leave the deceased there for about a year, which in these arid conditions, they would usually decompose rather thoroughly. And after about a year or so, you'd go back, and now you'd have the real dignified ceremony. It was kind of, they, they allowed them to be cremated in slow motion, if you will. Once they were sufficiently cre- cremated, they'd go back and they'd gather the remains and put them in a box called an ossuary. 
And then they'd have a more of a dignified burial and put them in a more dignified place, like a, catac a catacombs, special places reserved for these boxes, these ossuaries. And in all likelihood, what the guy is asking is this, uh, Lord, I want to follow you, but, but tonight I'm supposed to you know, uh, participate in my father's burial when we're going to collect his bones and put them in a box and, and honor him by the, the dignified way we're going to uh, uh, treat him at this point in time. So let me go do that, and then I'll catch up with you. And what Jesus is saying is, look, at, he's already laying with the corpses. Let the corpses take care of him. You've got, you're about life, not death. Now, the way Jesus says it, it's got a little punch to it. Let the dead bury the dead. It's, it's kind of, he's almost, I mean, he is. Okay, I, I, I got to quit trying to be nice with, about this. Jesus is dissing a very deeply rooted, val highly valued social custom in the first century. This would have been seen as grotesquely offensive by the rest of the family. You didn't honor your father. Doesn't the Bible teach you to honor your father and mother? And yet Jesus is saying, follow me. Don't even go back and do that. If you want to follow me right here, right now, I got to come first. Still another guy said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. They, they won't know, if I follow you to Jerusalem, they don't know, I'll just have disappeared. Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, Jesus is here laying out, all cards are on the table, and I love that about Jesus. He's laying out the, the, the radical cost of discipleship, and he's saying that following, following him means that we must be willing to put our allegiance to him before everything else, including family values, including acceptable social customs, including a concern to have a roof over our head, including just a concern to go home every night to our family. If Jesus calls us to leave that, we must leave that. Now, the first question I want to ask about that is this. How is this radical call to discipleship consistent with what I just preached about how God is calling all of us to get in the game wherever we're at, however wounded we are at, or however carnal we're at? Uh, it, it seems like here the, the, the qualifications are very, very high. One could see this as being a contradiction. How do we balance or, or even integrate the radical grace of God saying, however many times you blow it, I'll be with you, on the one hand, versus this, Whoever puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom on the other hand. How do you put those two things together? Here's how, here's how I get my mind around this. I think what Jesus is saying, I mean, it's, this is really a radical question because um, Jesus' own disciples blew it. They didn't put their hands to the plow and not look back. They looked back. They blew it. And yet Jesus included them as part of his, his, his journey. Here's how I put my mind around it. What Jesus is saying to each of these three individuals and therefore saying to us is this. You can't enter into the kingdom with any split allegiances. It's an all or nothing thing. By definition, to enter the kingdom of God means that God is king, which means nothing else is king. You can only have one king. You can only have one ultimate allegiance. The precondition for signing up to this is that you agree to those terms. No other allegiance but Jesus Christ. Now, of course, as you live that out, you're going to blow it. You're not going to live that out perfectly. You're going to fall on your face sometimes. And that's fine. Pick yourself up. Get back in the game. Jesus will forgive you. Keep doing kingdom work. But get, you can't get into it with one foot in one world and another foot in the other world. You get into it, by definition, by putting him first and foremost in your life. 
seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If these three individuals that presumably walked away when Jesus laid out the cross of discipleship, if these three individuals would have come back the next day or the next week or even the next year, I have no doubt but that Jesus would have, uh, would have embraced them and said, welcome to the kingdom, and now let's keep on marching. There's no record in the Bible of Jesus ever, ever telling somebody that they can't follow him because they've disqualified themselves. In fact, you find some pretty radical sinners uh, in, in Jesus' entourage. What happens to you is, doesn't disqualify you from following him. Only one thing will disqualify you from following him, and that is that you refuse to really follow him. You want to follow him and, of course, do these other things. You want to follow him but also have these other allegiances. And Jesus is saying to us, nope, you know what? It's an all-or-nothing deal. It's important that we realize that each of the three things that these people were asking, they were not bad things. They were not evil things. They were good things. They were normal things. They were socially appropriate things. You could even argue that they were somewhat grounded in the Bible, honoring your father and your mother, holding up family values. In the first century, these three things would have been sort of an of course. Well, of course. So it's like this. He, a person saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. But of course, I got to go home at night to my family. And Jesus says, no. Jesus, I'll follow you. But of course, I have to do my funeral tonight with my father. Jesus says, no. Uh, Lord, I'll follow you, but of course, I just got to go by and say goodbye to my family. Of course. I mean, obviously. Duh. And Jesus says, no. Uh, these are not bad things these people are asking for. They are normal. They are decent. They are good. They are praiseworthy things. And so what the passage is telling us is that this is how radical the kingdom is. To follow Jesus, to be part of the kingdom, means that sometimes even things that the culture assumes are good and praiseworthy and decent and laudable might have to go. You might have to lose your home. Sometimes following Jesus might bring you into confrontation with some fundamental values and assumptions in your culture. You might come across to other people as being positively rude, and that's the cost of discipleship because allegiance to Jesus has to be greater than allegiance to social propriety and assumptions and values of our culture. And it's at this point that the beauty of the kingdom can be offensive and revolting. We're all immersed in a culture, and that culture permeates our being. Our worldview is somewhat formed by our culture. Uh, we breathe the air of our culture, and it's very hard for us to question or even to notice the fundamental assumptions of our culture. Huh. The run on the aisles at Woodland Hills Church. It's hard for us to step outside of our culture. It's hard for the fish to notice the water that the fish swims in. Well, we all swim in a culture. And so it's hard for us to step outside and question those, those elements of our culture. And whenever anyone does question the fundamental assumptions of our culture that we hold near and dear to our heart, well, there can be an emotional response. It can even, it can be almost be a violent response. How dare you, how dare you call into question the ultimate legitimacy of this aspect of our culture? So the question I want us to ask right now, and now we are heading into interesting territory, is what are some of the core values of our culture that maybe are good and valuable, but that our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God requires that we call into question? I sat with a team of people on Monday as we are putting together, uh, the, you know, we, we talk about what are some of the issues we want to preach on, and we asked the question, what are the most fundamental assumptions in American culture that make Americans Americans? And what came out was this. What permeates American society at every, at every turn and explains the majority of behavior of Americans 
comes right out of the Declaration of Independence, that we have these unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right out of the Declaration of Independence. Fundamental assumptions, they permeate, that they form the American psyche. It's part of who we are. And already there might be one or two people in this congregation that are starting to feel a little warmth in their belly. Uh, a little anger, a little, there's some defensive walls going up, and they're saying, don't you start going after the Declaration of Independence, you commie. You know, you, 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 you respect the American way. You know, don't, don't you start going after that, you tree-hugging liberal. And see, if you're having that emotional response, stay put for a moment. Don't run out yet because there's something here for you. If you're having that, that kind of visceral reaction, it could be that, in fact, it's just revealing how deeply rooted these assumptions are into your psyche, into your heart. Now, I want to be very, very, very excruciatingly clear about something. I am not dissing the Declaration of Independence at all. I want you to know that, that I, I hold these three things to be very dear. I, the, the greatest things that, that, that a political regime could ever give its citizens. I think these three unalienable rights are, are politically great. And I think the Declaration of Independence is one of the greatest political documents ever, ever written. And I think democracy is the greatest form of government ever arrived at. I'm a true blue American. I love America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Now remember that in five minutes. I said that. You see, but as a person who, for whom Jesus Christ is first, I have to be willing to let myself call into question even things that seem so good and honorable and true. My commitment to the kingdom of God has got to be greater than my commitment to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, my commitment to Jesus Christ has got to be greater than my commitment to the Statue of Liberty. And, and something can be politically good and politically noble and yet come into conflict with the kingdom of God. And see, if we don't make a distance between us and our culture and the kingdom of God in our culture and the kingdom of God in our politics, we can very easily end up just christening the whole culture as Christian, which is actually what's happening a lot today, isn't it? And then, then you, you, you no longer are revolting against everything because everything you need to revolt against is on the inside of you. And now the beauty of the kingdom of God has entirely been watered down and disappeared. So we need to have a kingdom-critical look at things that we hold near and dear. Very quickly, let me, let, let me just go through this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's talk about life. The Declaration of Independence tells us that I have the right to live. I have the political right not to be killed, and I have the political right to do whatever I need to do to defend myself. That's the right to bear arms. And politically thinking, I think that is a great thing. I'm glad I live in a country that gives me uh, that right. But as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I can't let that define me. Because as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I'm called to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. And when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he gives up his right to live in service to his enemies, the very ones who are putting him to death. And I am called and you are called to imitate him. I'm called to put my allegiance to Jesus before my own right to life. I'm called to love my enemies and bless my enemies and pray for my enemies and do good to my enemies and in some context that might get me killed. It got a lot of people killed in the first century and a lot of people killed throughout history. And a world where everybody just defaults to their right to live, uh, uh, your, your refusal to live that way may make you look ridiculous. In fact, it may seem totally absurd, insane, and impractical. But if you're looking at it with kingdom eyes, it looks altogether beautiful. So while acknowledging that the right to live is a good political thing, following Jesus 
may mean that you have to revolt against it. In fact, I certainly have to revolt against it. My instinct to cling to my own life, for I'm called to, in a million different ways, put aside my rights, as he did, in order to serve the world. And in doing that, what we do is we no longer are defined by the political ideal and the noble ideal of having the right to, to, to life. We're now manifesting something that's beautiful, which is the beauty of a life that's no longer clinging to itself. So rare in this world, but so beautiful. Uh, a, a, a person who has set aside their rights uh, because of a higher calling, that is beautiful. To lay down your life for your friends and your enemies, that is beautiful, and that is the life that we're called to live. It's been beautifully expressed throughout history through the martyrs who considered it an honor to die like Jesus died. And we are all in our own way called to manifest that beauty. The beauty of a life that's not defined by the political right to life because you're defined by the, the, the cross where you set aside your rights to manifest a life that's freed from addiction to your right to life. Let's talk about liberty. I have the right as an American to live how I want to live as long as I don't hurt anybody. I have a right to have a say in who governs me and in how they govern me. That's covered by this concept of li liberty. And that is a good political right. I'm glad I live in a country that, where the government gives people that right. But as a kingdom of God citizen, this can't define me. I've got to go deeper because only Jesus Christ is supposed to define me. Now, this one is big, folks. This one is huge. To most Americans, including most Christian Americans, it simply is self-evident that, that uh, uh, God is on the side of political freedom, that it's virtually synonymous with the kingdom of God. So much so that the vast majority of American Christians don't even, even question uh, that, that political freedom is worth killing someone for and worth dying for. In fact, political freedom has become sort of the foundation of a new religion. It's a new American religion. And our gospel is, uh, our gospel is political freedom. And so when there's talk about spreading freedom throughout the world, a lot of people think that that's just the Christian duty. That's the kingdom of God. Now, you can agree or disagree with that political agenda of spreading freedom throughout the world. I don't care. But what I do care about is that you don't identify that with the kingdom of God. It's so self-evident to people that the highest good is political freedom. But as kingdom people, we have to have a critical stance. Consider this. Where do you find political freedom in the Old Testament? A word of it. Where do you find any word of political freedom in the New Testament? Where do you find any word of political freedom in the ministry of Jesus? In fact, where do you find any, political, any word about political freedom throughout all of church history up to the 16th and 17th centuries? You don't find a word about it. And when the idea of political freedom first began to be birthed in the late Renaissance period and then throughout the Enlightenment period, as people began to talk about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the main opponent of the whole thing were the Christians. Think about this. How can you possibly, here's how they would reason this way, how can you possibly say that that is a good thing, that people should be able to vote for who governs them when the Bible says, my Bible says, that God ordains the powers that be, Romans 13. You see? Now my point here is this. It was obvious to them that political freedom was a bad thing. It's obvious to us that it's a good thing. And that just shows you how easy it is to be defined by your culture. I think it's politically a good thing. But as a kingdom of God person, I have to realize, I have to look around and see that, that it's a good thing, but it's also this live life however you want to live. It's produced some pretty nasty stuff. Would you agree with that? People start living however they want to live, and, and, and it, it produces some, some stuff that ain't necessarily of God, and we're dealing a lot with that. Not only, not only that, but as a kingdom of God person, I need to remember that my job is to revolt against 
my inclination to live however I want to live. That's an enemy I got to slay, not something I'm supposed to christen as the highest value. And as a kingdom of God person, I need to know that I have to resist this so American mindset that the highest authority in my life are my preferences. What do I want to do? See, we all, as fallen creatures, love that one, and that's a good political value, but in our own lives, it's what we have to resist because we're called to submit all of our mind and every aspect of our being to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which means that, that, that it's not just a matter of what I want. It's a matter of what God wants, and I'm supposed to live accordingly. Am I right to choose who's going uh, to lead me and, and who's going to govern? That's a great political right. But at the same time, as a kingdom person, I've got to resist the temptation. It is a temptation to put my trust in any form of government, including the democratic form of government. I've got to resist the temptation to think that the hope of the world hangs on getting the right political party or that I'm actually doing more with my vote than what I do when I serve people. As a kingdom person, I'm called to remember that the greatest power on the planet is the power of Calvary love, the power of serving people, the power of spending my life in service to others. That's the hope of the world, folks. And so what is a good political ideal is something that we as kingdom people are called to strongly revolt against and resist. And in doing that, we no longer manifest necessarily the political noble ideal of personal freedom, but we therefore manifest something far, far more beautiful. And that's the beauty of a life that's no longer addicted to its own rights and its own freedom, but rather is willing to lay aside its own freedom to be a slave of Jesus Christ and manifest the beauty of Christ-like character of the world. That's a life that's truly free, folks, and that's the freedom that the Bible's talking about. Finally, the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. I have the right. All this comes right out of John Locke, by the way. You don't find the Bible, but you do find it in John Locke and other Enlightenment philosophers, and it's good. It's good. I have the right to do whatever I think I want to do in order to try to be happy. It's the pursuit of happiness. No one has the right to be happy, but you have the right to try to be happy. So good luck on that one. <laughs> um, and this is, I think, a great political thing, that government gives people the right to pursue happiness. But as a kingdom person, this has got, I affirm the value politically, but as a kingdom person, this has got to really concern me. Our culture worships happiness. It's the ultimate lord of our life. Our preferences are our highest idol. We make all of our choices. We're inclined to make all of our choices based on whether or not it will make me happy. Do I want the house? Can I afford the house? I get the house. Why? Because it will make me happy to get the house. We don't ask any other questions. Do I want the car? Can I afford the car? I get the car. Do I want this clothes? these clothes? Uh, do I like the clothes? Will they make me happy? I get the clothes. Do I want to stay in this marriage or do I want to get out of this marriage? The ultimate criteria for most people is, is it making me happy? Will I be happier in or happier out? what job we, 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 we take on, how we steward our money, the lord of the, the life of most Americans is personal preferences. They're pursuing happiness. Now, as a kingdom person, it's a great political right, but i got to realize that this is something I'm called to revolt against. It's not enough for me as a kingdom person or for you as a kingdom person to say, do I want the house and can I afford the house? The real question is, does God want me to have this house? Is this where God wants me to live? Is this how God wants me to live? It's not a matter of me saying I can spend my money however I want. Yes, you have that right as an American. And thank God you have that right as an American. But as a kingdom of God citizen, you have an obligation to submit it all before God. How does God want you to steward your time? How does God want you to steward your finances and your resources and your talent and to submit it all to him? And to do that, you've got to revolt against this American addiction 
to making personal preference the Lord of our life. And as we do that, we can manifest the beauty of a different kind of life. It's life in the kingdom of God. It's the beauty of a person who's no longer addicted to trying to be happy. Because it's the beauty of a person who's discovered real life and real joy. And you don't get joy by adding a lot of happinesses together. Joy comes from an entirely different source. When you no longer, when you know Jesus Christ and the life of the kingdom is being poured in you and you know your eternal worth and you are no longer free of death and you're no longer clinging to your life and you're no longer clinging to things, you're no longer clinging to your rights because all your life and all your worth comes from Jesus Christ, you no longer need to be trying to collect things and gather things and impress people to, in order to get a little bit of happiness. Rather, you've got an inner joy, what the Bible calls a wellspring of living water living inside of you, John chapter 7. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, a walking, talking temple of God. You've got a joy unspeakable and a full of glory. You don't need the petty happiness of the world because this is the kind of joy you can have whether you're living free or whether you're in prison. It's the kind of joy you can have whether you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you're healthy or whether you're going to die tomorrow. This is there. It's your kingdom birthright. But to manifest that birthright, you've got to revolt against this very American addiction to pursuit of happiness. Preference can't be Lord of your life because Jesus is Lord of your life. And if you lose your life, the life in this world Life, as America defines it, Jesus tells us, will find really real life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Noble political goals. But the kingdom revolts against the addiction to the right to life, the tyranny of personal freedom, and the addiction to pursuing happiness. And in doing that, we can manifest a life that's beautiful because we're willing to lay down our rights, lay down our life, surrender our personal freedom, and no longer govern by the pursuit of happiness. The kingdom is about revolting beauty. A beauty that revolts against everything in the culture that may be good, it may be decent, it may be noble, but it's not beautiful. And the only way we get to the beauty is by revolting against that. Close your eyes for a moment. We're going to go into another period of, of, of worship here for about 30 minutes. But I just want to give the Holy Spirit a chance to reveal to us what we need to learn about this message. So just go inside that inner sanctum right now in, in your mind. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to show us, reveal to us any area of our life where America has replaced the kingdom as the highest value. What area of your life maybe reveals too much buy-in to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And don't think too much about it as you get something in your mind, just commit to making Jesus first. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else that you need is going to be added unto you. Just let the Holy Spirit reveal to you. Reveal. It may be an attitude that you've had towards enemies, which is maybe very American, but also very unchristlike. It may be that the Lord will reveal to you that you didn't seek God's will about where you're living and how you're living. And where you decided to live and how you decided to live, he doesn't agree with. And maybe he's going to convict you about that. Let him, let him, and he'll lead you on where to go from here. Holy Spirit, have your way in our life. Make us your kingdom people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now we're now going to go into a very, very, very important time of worship. The last six weeks, we've seen God move in incredible ways in worship here. And the reason is because we've all made the decision. This is what worship is. It's not about singing a song. It's about making a decision to focus in the now. 
on who God is and what he's about. And we celebrate this in song. And as we open, as we focus our minds and put aside all other concerns and distractions, we create little windows in heaven whereby the Spirit of God comes down and worship becomes a God encounter. And when we have a God encounter, the kingdom happens in people's lives and people are set free from perhaps addictions to life, liberty, and the truth of, and, and the pursuit of happiness. So not just for God's sake and for our sake, but for our neighbor's sake, we need to be wholly invested in this time of, of, of worship. It's a ministry to God, but it's a ministry also to one another. And so I want to ask us all to make the decision. It's a sacrifice of praise, the Bible says, which is why the first act of worship will be taken up an offering. We give sacrificially to the kingdom. And then I encourage you for the next 25, 30 minutes to enter into this time as we sing about who, what God has done, about who he is, think about the words and just keep on throwing them up to heaven and let God be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. since my old Pentecostal days. Man, we used to just get up there and hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> I love it. You see, why let that stuff go? I thank you guys for including that song. I, I, we used to wave our hankies like this. You know, some of you come from that background. Oh, yeah. Glory, glory, glory. 
And is there a better song that celebrates death than that one? Yeah. Someday I'm going to die. No more shackles. No more chains. No more. I can fly away from this old carcass I'm carrying around right now. Amen. That's freedom, folks. That's, that's the freedom of the gospel. And it, 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 fly, it, it, it soars in the ozone while political freedom's down here. That freedom's out there in the heavenlies. And uh, amen. That's real freedom. He came to free us from the fear of death. Okay, just a couple things. Please stop by and join Puente de Vida, the church that we partner with, uh, to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. Get some food, some fellowship, get the food, and walk down the hall. And we got rooms available to eat in, and the food is really, really good. Uh, and so, so be a part of that. Stick around for a little bit. If you're here and there's any need that you have whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, our prayer teams will come up here right now. And if you would like to pray with them, they'll be happy to spend some time praying with you, or you can just kneel at the altar if you want. If you're here this morning, and you have never made Jesus Christ your sole allegiance, you've never surrendered to him, don't leave in that, in that, that condition. Come forward here. These folks would love to just explain to you what it is to begin that walk towards Jerusalem, become part of the kingdom. If you're interested in getting plugged into a, uh, a Revolting Beauty small group, stop by at the Revolting Beauty table back there and get involved in this. Pick up a journal and, and a, 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 uh, the prayer devotional and be a part of that. And Lord, as we leave this place, God, we pray that a kingdom aroma, the beauty of your fragrance, the beauty of your light would shine in us and through us. And Lord God, purge us of our addiction to anything in this world, however good and noble it might be. But God, if it binds us, it's just something we got to revolt against. Help us to live that extravagantly different kind of life that looks like Jesus Christ, full of life and enjoy serving others. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Yee-hoo!